Chapter 7 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 7 David Friedrich Strauss, The Man and His Fate. In order to understand Strauss, one must love him. He was not the greatest and not the deepest of theologians, but he was the most absolutely sincere. His insight and his errors were alike the insight and the errors of a prophet, and he had a prophet's fate. Disappointment and suffering gave his life its consecration. It unrolls itself before us like a tragedy, in which, in the end, the gloom is lightened by the mild radiance which shines forth from the nobility of the sufferer. Strauss was born in 1808 at Ludwigsburg. His father was a merchant, whose business, however, was unsuccessful, so that his means steadily declined. The boy took his ability from his mother, a good, self-controlled, sensible, pious woman, to whom he raised a monument in his Memorial of a Good Mother, written in 1858 to be given to his daughter on her confirmation day. From 1821 to 1825, he was a pupil at the lower seminary at Blaubaren, along with Friedrich Vischer, Pfizer, Zimmermann, Marklin, and Binder. Among their teachers was Ferdinand Christian Bauer, whom they were to meet with again at the university. His first year at the university was uninteresting, as it was only in the following year that the reorganization of the theological faculty took place, in consequence of the appointment of Bauer. The instruction at the philosophical faculty was almost equally unsatisfactory, so that the friends would have gained little from the two years of philosophical probedeutic, which formed part of the course prescribed for theological students, if they had not combined to prosecute their philosophical studies for themselves. The writings of Hegel began to exercise a powerful influence upon them. For the philosophical faculty, Hegel's philosophy was as yet non-existent. These student friends were much addicted to poetry. Two journeys which Strauss made, along with his fellow student Binder, to Weinsberg, to see Justinus Kerner, made a deep impression upon him. He had to make a deliberate effort to escape from the dream world of the prophetist of Prevorst. Some years later, in a Latin note to Binder, he speaks of Weinsberg as Mecca Nostra. According to Vischer's picture of him, the tall stripling made an impression of great charm, though he was rather shy except with intimates. He attended lectures with pedantic regularity. Bauer was, at that time, still immersed in the prolegomena to his system, but Strauss already suspected the direction which the thoughts of his young teacher were to take. When Strauss and his student friends entered on their duties as clergymen, the others found great difficulty in bringing their theological views into line with the popular beliefs which they were expected to preach. Strauss alone remained free from inner struggles. In a letter to Binder of the year 1831, he explains that in his sermons, he was then assistant at Klein Ingersheim near Ludwigsburg, he did not use representative notions, such as that of the devil, 
which the people were already prepared to dispense with but others which still appeared to be indispensable such as those of an eschatological character he merely endeavoured to present in such a way that the intellectual concept which lay behind might so far as possible shine through he continues quote, when i consider how far even in intellectual preaching the expression is inadequate to the true essence of the concept it does not seem to me to matter much if one goes even a step further i at least go about the matter without the least scruple and cannot ascribe this to a mere want of sincerity in myself that is hegelian logic after being for a short time deputy professor at malbron he took his doctor's degree with a dissertation on the apocatastasis panton or restoration of all things from acts chapter three verse twenty one this work is lost from his letters it appears that he treated the subject chiefly from the religious historical point of view when binder took his doctorate with a philosophical thesis on the immortality of the soul strauss in eighteen thirty two wrote to him expressing the opinion that the belief in personal immortality could not properly be regarded as a consequence of the hegelian system since according to hegel it was not the subjective spirit of the individual person but only the objective spirit the self-realizing idea which constantly embodies itself in new creations to which immortality belongs in october eighteen thirty one he went to Berlin to hear Hegel and Schleiermacher. On the 14th of November, Hegel, whom he had visited shortly before, was carried off by cholera. Strauss heard the news in Schleiermacher's house, from Schleiermacher himself, and is said to have exclaimed, with a certain want of tact, considering who his informant was, And it was to hear him that I came to Berlin! There was no satisfactory basis for a relationship between Schleiermacher and Strauss. They had nothing in common. That did not prevent Strauss's Life of Jesus being sometimes described by opponents of Schleiermacher as a product of the latter's philosophy of religion. Indeed, as late as the sixties, Tholuck thought it necessary to defend the memory of the great theologian against this reproach. As a matter of fact, the plan of the life of Jesus arose during Strauss's intercourse with Vodka, to whom he felt himself strongly drawn. Moreover, what was first sketched out was not primarily the plan of a life of Jesus, but that of a history of the ideas of primitive Christianity, intended to serve as a standard by which to judge ecclesiastical dogma. The life of Jesus was originally designed, it might also be said, as a mere prologue to this work, the plan of which was subsequently carried out under the title Christian Theology in its Historical Development and in its Antagonism with Modern Scientific Knowledge, published in 1840 through 1841. When, in the spring of 1832, he returned to Tübingen to take up the position of repetent or assistant lecturer in the Theological College, these plans were laid on the shelf in consequence of his preoccupation with philosophy, and if things had gone according to Strauss's wishes, they would perhaps never have come to fulfillment. 
the repetents had the right to lecture upon philosophy. Strauss felt himself called upon to come forward with an apostle of Hegel, and lectured upon Hegel's logic with tremendous success. Zeller, who attended these lectures, records the unforgettable impression which they made upon him. Besides championing Hegel, Strauss also lectured upon Plato and upon the history of modern philosophy. These were three happy semesters. He writes in a letter of 1833, quote, In my theology, philosophy occupies such a predominant position that my theological views can only be worked out to completeness by means of a more thorough study of philosophy, and this course of study I am now going to prosecute uninterruptedly and without concerning myself whether it leads me back to theology or not. Close quote. Further on, he says, quote, if I know myself rightly, my position in regard to theology is that what interests me in theology causes offense, and what does not cause offense is indifferent to me. For this reason, I have refrained from delivering lectures on theology. Close quote. The philosophical faculty was not altogether pleased at the success of the Apostle of Hegel, and wished to have the right of the repetents to lecture on philosophy curtailed. The latter, however, took their stand upon the tradition. Strauss was desired to intermit his lectures until the matter should be settled. He would have liked best to end the situation by entering the philosophical faculty. The other repetents, however, begged him not to do so, but to continue to champion their rights. It is possible also that obstacles were placed in the way of his plan by the philosophical faculty. However that may be, it was in any case not carried through. Strauss was forced back upon theology. According to Hase, Strauss began his studies for the life of Jesus by writing a detailed critical review of Hase's textbook. He sent this to Berlin to the Jahrbücher für Wissenschaftliche Kritik, which, however, refused it. His resolve to publish first, instead of the general work on the genesis of Christian doctrine, a critical study on the life of Jesus, was doubtless determined by Schleiermacher's lectures on the subject, when in Berlin he had procured a copy of a lecture notebook, and the reading of it incited him to opposition. Considering its character, the work was rapidly produced. He wrote it sitting at the window of the repetent's room, which looks out upon the gateway arch. When its two volumes appeared in 1835, the name of the author was wholly unknown, except for some critical studies upon the Gospels. This book, into which he had poured his youthful enthusiasm, rendered him famous in a moment, and utterly destroyed his prospects. Among his opponents, the most prominent was Stoidel, a member of the theological faculty, who, as president of the Stift, made representations against him to the ministry, and succeeded in securing his removal from the post of repetent. The hopes which Strauss had placed upon his friends were disappointed. Only two or three at most dared to publish anything in his defense. He first accepted a transfer to the post of deputy professor at Ludwigsburg, but in less than a year he was glad to give it up, for he then returned to Stuttgart. There he lived for several years, 
busying himself in the preparations of new editions of the life of Jesus, and in writing answers to the attacks which were made upon him. Towards the end of the thirties, he became conscious of a growing impulse towards more positive views. The criticisms of his opponents had made some impression upon him. The second volume of polemics was laid aside. In its place appeared the third edition of the life of Jesus, in 1838-1839, through 1839, containing a series of amazing concessions. Strauss explains that, in consequence of reading De Vetti's commentary and Neander's Life of Jesus, he had begun to feel some hesitation about his former doubts regarding the genuineness and credibility of the fourth gospel. The historic personality of Jesus again began to take on intelligible outlines for him. These inconsistencies he removed in the next edition, acknowledging that he did not know how he could so have temporarily vacillated in his point of view. The matter admits, however, of a psychological explanation. He longed for peace, and he had suffered more than his enemies suspected or his friends knew. The ban of the outlaw lay heavy upon his soul. In this spirit he composed, in 1839, the monologues entitled Transient and Permanent Elements in Christianity, which appeared again in the following year under the title Leaves of Peace. For a moment, it seemed as though his rehabilitation would be accomplished. In January 1839, the noble-minded Hitzig succeeded in getting him appointed to a vacant chair of dogmatics in Zurich, but the orthodox and pietist parties protested so vehemently that the government was obliged to revoke the appointment. Strauss was pensioned off without ever entering on his office. About that time, his mother died. In 1841, he lost his father. When the estate came to be settled up, it was found that his affairs were in a less unsatisfactory condition than had been feared. Strauss was secure against want. The success of his second great work, his Christian Theology, published in 1840-1841, through 1841, compensated him for his disappointment at Zurich. In conception, it is perhaps even greater than his life of Jesus, and in depth of thought it is to be classed with the most important contributions to theology. In spite of that, it never attracted so much attention as the earlier work. Strauss continued to be known as the author of The Life of Jesus. Any further ground of offense which he might give was regarded as quite subsidiary. And the book contains matter for offense in no common degree. The point to which Strauss applies his criticism is the way in which the Christian theology, which grew out of the ideas of the ancient world, has been brought into harmony with the Christianity of rationalism and of speculative philosophy. Either, to use his own expression, both are so finely pulverized in the process, as in the case of Schleiermacher's combination of Spinozism with Christianity, that it needs a sharp eye to rediscover the elements of the mixture, or the two are shaken together like water and oil, in which case the semblance of combination is only maintained so long as the shaking continues. For this crude procedure, he desires to substitute a better method based upon a preliminary historical criticism of dogma, in order that thought may no longer have to deal with the present form of church theology.
but with the ideas which worked as living forces in its formation. This is brilliantly worked out in detail. The result is not a positive, but a negative Hegelian theology. Religion is not concerned with supramundane beings and a divinely glorious future, but with present spiritual realities which appear as moments in the eternal being and becoming of absolute spirit. At the end of the second volume, where battle is joined on the issue of personal immortality, all these ideas play their part in the struggle. Personal immortality is finally rejected in every form, for the critical reasons which Strauss had already set forth in the letters of 1832. Immortality is not something which stretches out into the future, but simply and solely the present quality of the spirit, its inner universality, its power of rising above everything finite to the idea. Here, the thought of Hegel coincides with that of Schleiermacher. Quote, the saying of Schleiermacher, in the midst of finitude to be one with the infinite, and to be eternal in a moment, is all that modern thought can say about immortality. But neither Schleiermacher nor Hegel was willing to draw the natural inferences from their ultimate position, or at least they did not give them any prominence. It is not the application of the mythological explanation to the gospel history which irrevocably divides Strauss from the theologians, but the question of personal immortality. It would be well for them if they had only to deal with the Strauss of the life of Jesus, and not with the thinker who posed this question with inexorable trenchancy. They might then face the future more calmly, relieved of the anxiety lest once more Hegel and Schleiermacher might rise up in some pious but critical spirit not to speak smooth things, but to ask the ultimate questions, and might force theology to fight its battle with Strauss all over again. At the very time when Strauss was beginning to breathe freely once more, had turned his back upon all attempts at compromise, and reconciled himself to giving up teaching, and when, after settling his father's affairs, he had the certainty of being secure against penury. At that very time, he sowed for himself the seeds of a new, immitigable suffering by his marriage with Agnes Shebest, the famous singer. They were not made for one another. He could not look at her for any sympathy with his plans, and she, on her part, was repelled by the pedantry of his disposition. Housekeeping difficulties and the trials of a limited income added another element of discord. They removed to Sontheim near Heilbronn, with the idea of learning to adapt themselves to one another far from the distractions of the town. But that did not better matters. They lived apart for a time, and after some years they procured a divorce, custody of the children being assigned to the father. The lady took up her residence in Stuttgart, and Strauss paid her an allowance up to her death in 1870. What he suffered may be read between the lines in the passage in The Old Faith and the New, where he speaks of the sacredness of marriage and the admissibility of divorce. The wound bled inwardly. His mental powers were disabled. At this time he wrote little. Only in the apologue, Julian the Apostate, or the Romanticist on the throne of the Caesars, that brilliant satire upon Frederick William the Fourth, 
written in 1847, is there a flash of the old spirit. But in spite of his antipathy to the romantic disposition of the King of Prussia, he entered the lists in 1848 on behalf of the efforts of the smaller German states to form a united Germany, apart from Austria, under the hegemony of Prussia. He did not suffer his political acumen to be blunted either by personal antipathies or by particularism. The citizens of Ludwigsburg wished to have him as their representative in the Frankfurt Parliament, but the rural population, who were pietistic in sympathies, defeated his candidature. Instead, his native town sent him to the Württemberg Chamber of Deputies. But here his Philistinism came to the fore again. The phrase-mongering revolutionary party in the chamber disgusted him. He saw himself more and more forced to the right, and was obliged to act politically with men whose reactionary sympathies he was far from sharing. His constituents, meanwhile, were thoroughly discontented with his attitude. In the end, the position became intolerable. It was also painful for him to have to reside in Stuttgart, where he could not avoid meeting the woman who had brought so much misery into his life. Further, he himself mentions this point in his memoirs. He had no practice in speaking without manuscript, and cut a poor figure as a debater. Then came the Blum case. Robert Blum, a revolutionary, had been shot by court-martial in Vienna. The Württemberg chamber desired to vote a public celebration of his funeral. Strauss did not think there was any ground for making a hero of this agitator, merely because he had been shot, and was not inclined to blame the Austrian government very severely for meeting out summary justice to a disturber of the peace. His attitude brought on him a vote of censure from his constituents. When, subsequently, the president of the chamber called him to order by asserting that a previous speaker had, quote, concealed by sleight of hand, close quote, an important point in the debate, he refused to accept the vote of censure, resigning his membership, and ceased to attend the diets. As he himself put it, he, quote, jumped out of the boat, close quote. Then began a period of restless wandering, during which he beguiled his time with literary work. He wrote, inter alia, upon Lessing, Hutton, and Rymarus, rediscovering the last named for his fellow countrymen. At the end of the sixties, he returned once more to theology. His Life of Jesus, adapted for the German people, appeared in 1864. In the preface, he refers to Renan, and freely acknowledges the great merits of his work. The Prusso-Austrian War placed him in a difficult position. His historical insight made it impossible for him to share the particularism of his friends. On the contrary, he recognized that the way was now being prepared for the realization of his dream of 1848, an alliance of the smaller German states under the hegemony of Prussia. As he made no secret of his opinions, he had the bitter experience of receiving the cold shoulder from men who had hitherto loyally stood by him. In the year 1870, it was granted to him to become the spokesman of the German people, through a publication on Voltaire which had appeared not long before he had become acquainted with Renan. In a letter to Strauss, written after the first battles, 
Renan made a passing allusion to these great events. Strauss seized the opportunity to explain to him in a vigorous, open letter of the 12th of August, Germany's reason and justification for going to war. Receiving an answer from Renan, he then, in a second letter of the 29th of September, took occasion to defend Germany's right to demand the cession of Alsace, not on the ground of its having formerly been German territory, but for the defense of her natural frontiers. The resounding echo evoked by these words, inspired as they were by the enthusiasm of the moment, compensated him for much of the obloquy which he had had to bear. His last work, The Old Faith and the New, appeared in 1872. Once more, as in the work on theology published in 1840 through 1841, he puts to himself the question, what is there of permanence in this artificial compound of theology and philosophy, faith and thought? But he puts the question with a certain bitterness, and shows himself too much under the influence of Darwinism, by which his mind was at that time dominated. The Hegelian system of thought, which served as a firm basis for the work of 1840, has fallen in ruins. Strauss is alone with his own thoughts, endeavoring to raise himself above the new scientific worldview. His powers of thought, never, for all his critical acumen, strong on the creative side, and now impaired by age, were unequal to the task. There is no force and no greatness in the book. But to the question, are we still Christians? He answers, no. But to his second question, have we still a religion? He is prepared to give an affirmative answer, if the assumption is granted that the feeling of dependence, of self-surrender, of inner freedom, which has sprung from the pantheistic worldview, can be called religion. But instead of developing the idea of this deep inner freedom and presenting religion in the form in which he had experienced it, he believes himself obliged to offer some new construction based upon Darwinism, and sets himself to answer the two questions, how are we to understand the world, and how are we to regulate our lives? The form of the latter is somewhat lacking in distinction, in a quite impersonal way. It is only the schoolmaster and pedant in him, who was always at the elbow of the thinker, even in his greatest works, that finds expression here. It was a dead book, in spite of the many editions which it went through, and the battle which raged over it was, like the fiercest of the Homeric battles, a combat over the dead. The theologians declared Strauss bankrupt, and felt themselves rich because they had made sure of not being ruined by a similar unimaginative honesty. Friedrich Nietzsche, from the height of his would-be Schopenhauerian pessimism, mocked at the fallen hero. Before the year was out, Strauss began to suffer from an internal ulcer. For many months he bore his sufferings with quiet resignation and inner serenity, until, on the 8th of February, 1874, in his native town of Ludwigsburg, death set him free. A few weeks earlier, on the 29th of December, 1873, his sufferings and his thoughts received illuminating expression in the following poignant verses. 
he to whom my plaint is knows i shed no tear she to whom i say this feels i have no fear time has come for fading like a glimmering ray or a sense evading strain that floats away may though fainter dimmer only clear and pure to the last the glimmer and the strain endure the persons alluded to in the first verse are his son who as a physician attended him in his illness and to whom he was deeply attached and a very old friend to whom the verses were addressed translator he was buried on a stormy february day end of chapter seven